Hi everyone, welcome to the sixth episode of Barking from the Rooftops. My name is Jim Gillis and I'll be your host today. Today's guest, Andrew Hale, has a degree in psychology and previously worked in human therapy. For the past 10 years, Andrew has been working with animals, primarily dogs, as a certified animal behaviourist. In both careers, Andrew's had a passion for exploring and unpacking the emotional experience and what it means for delivering a human or animal-centred care approach. Andrew has played a leading role in the UK dog training behaviour community, having been the chair of Association of Into Dogs and the driving force behind UK Dog Behaviour and Training Charter. He's a behaviour consultant for Pet Remedy, and Andrew runs a Facebook group called Dog Centred Care. So today, we're going to be discussing all things to do with animal behaviour. Um, it's a pleasure to have Andrew on the podcast. I've been looking forward to it. So please join me and welcome Andrew to the podcast. Hey, Jim. How are you? I'm very good. Thanks. Yourself? Yeah, good. Thank you so much for, for having me along. And um, especially looking at the calibre of your previous guests, I feel very humbled by it. So, uh, yeah, thank you very much. Oh, you're most welcome. And, and, and thanks for taking the time to do this. So so maybe if you could maybe start with just a little bit more background on, you, on yourself, um, Andrew. How did you first get into dog training? Before I start that, I must let everybody know, uh, which I've had to say a few times recently, I've got a puppy and she's sleeping at my feet. Uh, so uh, hopefully that will stay the, stay all the way through. But uh, wait, I just thought I'd let people know in case things get a bit lively. Uh, so dog training. So uh, I've got a human psychology background, as you mentioned. And then um, I had my own breakdown, the, the kind of mother of all breakdowns, really. And it just goes to show... Just because you know about stuff doesn't make you immune from it. I'm immune from having uh, challenges, and uh, and I just didn't see it coming, Jim. To be honest, and when it hit me, it hit me hard. So um, there's nothing like that kind of situation to really give you a chance to reflect and reappraise. And um, one of my therapists that I was having, <clears throat> uh, his brother um, was only because he's retired. He's still with us. Uh, John Roberts is his brother. Uh, John uh, was. Um, uh very much involved in animal husbandry within zoo settings and that's how I started to have a conversation about animal behavior I just found it really interesting and uh and because of what I was going through in my own personal life I thought well maybe it's time for a bit of a shift and a change and, and I got a chance to spend a couple of years with with him um around various zoos and it was really interesting um and then I started thinking about well maybe this could be my next step forwards about what I do as a career. And um, there's not many gorillas or big cats about unless they're in a zoo, of course. So uh, I've always loved dogs and I, and, uh, and I thought, well, maybe this is the way through. So that's kind of how it, how it came about. And in both careers, really, human and working with animals, dogs specifically, I've always had an interest for the notion of the emotional experience and, and you know what that is and what that means. And, and obviously we can unpack some of that now if you want to but but uh and that's what's connected through because the thing about the emotional experience uh, people will have heard me talk about this before if they've heard me speak before of course uh two very important things about the emotional experience one is we all have one this is the point you have one i have one our dog has one the cat has one the horse has one and secondly and this is the important bit for me and the fascinating bit they're all very unique and different. So you and I, Jim, can be in the same place experiencing the same thing at the same time, but we'll have a very different experience around that. Uh, we will add value to different things. We will take away different things. We will experience different things. Uh, and that is what's so fascinating about the emotional experience. So when we think about our work, we have to think about 
our emotional experience, uh, which is important because we overlook that a lot. We have to think about the emotional experience of the caregiver. And quite often, uh, it can be easy to not be available to hear that, uh, you know, not for them not to be able to share their emotional experience. And then, of course, the emotional experience of the dog. And that's the most important thing uh, that I talk about a lot um, because, um, you know, it's not more important than our or the carer's emotional experience, but it isn't as far as what I talk about, because that's what we put a lot of focus on. And I very much see it about, I use the word truth a lot. Uh, when we think about the emotional experience, it is a, it is an expression of our own individual truth. And what a lot of the discussions that are going on at the moment regarding how we rethink our view of behavior, which has in the past been quite an arbitrary one about how do we change behavior, you know, the lots of how, to more of a philosophical thought about how do we become better at being available to the truth of another, whether that's the caregiver and, of course, the dog. So that's um, kind of how I came into it and why I'm doing what I do, I guess. Sounds good. And where can people find out more about you, Andrew? You have your own your own website, and I'll bring that up just now, and that's uh, Dog Centre Care, that that stands for, the Dog CC part, is that right? That's right, yeah. So <clears throat> Dog Centre Care is a new new kind of venture, really. Um, so dogcc.org is the website. There's a, it's under development at the moment, but there, there is some stuff there, and there's the opportunity to be able to, to get in touch if you want to. Um, the Facebook group is the main place. What I've tried to do, th the thing is, Jim, uh, we've got to recognise the importance of collaboration in our industry and how, you know, I, I speak my truth. I've got my opinion on things. Very good at sharing that, as people know. Uh, and uh, but that is it; it's mine. And uh, uh, and I'm definitely not some kind of guru or, or telling people what they should do. And it's important that we recognise all those authentic voices that have been around for a long time, talking about emotionality in dogs, talking about looking at things differently, looking at things beyond the operant. Uh, just to coin that phrase, because that's something else I'm involved with with Kim Brophy and, and Kathy Murphy. We can talk about that in a moment. Uh, so. For me, uh, an important role for me is trying to provide a safe space for these conversations and to recognize the voices that have been talking about this stuff for a long time and also and linking into those people who's talking about it now. And definitely what I found through the Dog Center Care Facebook group, which is an open group so anybody can come. So many colleagues have been thinking along these lines for a long time uh and uh but they haven't necessarily felt comfortable expressing some of their thoughts or they haven't necessarily created a vocabulary around it uh and that's the most important thing for that platform for me and, and uh you know we have great people come into the group to come have a chat and share their passion and share their vision uh a chance for people some of the my favorite posts in the group are people who are just sharing their experiences because all our experiences are valid right and um something that's happened over time in the dog industry specifically dog community is this push away from the anecdotal uh, and i understand that because we've had too much kind of pseudoscience in the past and things that have just been put out as factual and they're not so i get that we need to start thinking about evidence basing some of the conversations we have but it shouldn't be at the uh, expense of the anecdotal and people sharing their experiences, sharing their truth. And that's what we try to do in the Dog Centre Care Group. Great stuff. And it is such a big problem, isn't it, particularly online and more kind of 
I guess trying to, to, to break through some of that information online is extremely difficult for professionals and for dog owners themselves. But people can come, come to that group and join, no problem at all, and come in and chat about any issues or any experiences they may have. Is that fair? Yeah, so the focus is on the emotional experience and what that means. That's the whole point of the group, really. And I framed it as dog-centred care only because I've kind of pinched that really from my human days when we think about child-centred care, patient-centred care. It's just about shifting the balance a little bit because uh, I talk a lot about pushing back against what I perceive and others as do, it's not just me, uh, the operant bias where we're just really good at, as I say, thinking about the how. I call it the operant merry-go-round because most of the conflict and arguments and heated discussions are regarding quadrants and what are the best methods and tools and and all that is really just looking at the same purpose which is how do we change that behavior these discussions are happening more now is about thinking about the why and thinking about the difference between reinforcing a behavior um, or even shutting down a behavior I guess uh, in an arbitrary way and the difference between that and a behavior that is given that has value to the dog the same principles happen but the same principles apply to humans of course when we think about these things uh and and just thinking about a little bit more of things so the the beyond the opera chats with kim and kathy and we have different guests come in um kathy couldn't do the the, the recent one it was kim and i and we had laura donaldson in talking about cognitive reappraisal oh my god laura's amazing i really um encourage everybody to go and check out laura's work i encourage everybody to go and check out kim's work kim brothy her book meet your dog it's a must read right i think kim's well, she has yeah kim's been on your podcast and she's she's amazing right and kathy uh with her barking brains uh, i'm going to keep plugging quite a few people actually while we talk Please through. Do. why not Please do. uh and i think it's important so but it's beyond the operant it's not instead of you know there's been a little bit of criticism along the way guess what it's our industry so there always is um about especially directed at me as though i'm somehow anti-training anti-operant and and i and i'm just not how can you be uh it's just about asking more questions about and being more truthful jim i think this is the thing is being more truthful about what is happening because there's this notion that this notion of train to calm and training calm behaviors and and all these kind of things we're making huge assumptions about the dog's emotional state when in fact what we're doing is physically getting the dog to do something so one of the big ones for me is um, you know, having a dog who settles on the mat and then that mat can be taken other places because that's the dog's safe space. That's a lot of assumptions there. I think more honestly, it's a case of the dogs getting more compliant at staying in one place, which is fair enough. But to make these other assumptions that somehow the dog is now calm, the dog likes that, the dog feels safer there. I think we've just got to think about some of these things. And, and especially when we work with certain cases where we have a heavy operant approach, uh, even using positive reinforcement, um, where we are, we're kind of the human narrative is deciding what the behavioral output is going to be without thinking whether we're giving the dog relief. So that's a word I use a lot. Uh, and in my opinion for what it's worth i just think it's one of the most important words in the psychology of behavior especially in the psychology of care it's about trying to give relief uh so you might share something with me jim and i might 
uh think oh yeah jim you got to do this you got to do that i think i know what's best for you so i'm gonna really support you this month am i giving you relief or am i just getting to do something i think would be better for you without actually taking into consideration your truth within that you know and i think um good therapy uh is about the therapist allowing that truth uh, from the the patient or the or the client, and um, giving them the opportunities to find ways to find their own support and way through those things that is authentic for them. Bad therapy is somebody telling you what to do, uh, and we have to think about that in terms of our dogs. You know, I want to try and help a dog to be able to be in a situation, and this is where Laura Donaldson's work, of course, about cognitive reappraisal is really important, to be able to go through a its own self-regulatory cycle without me having to dive in and keep micromanaging. And if I am going to use positive reinforcement, and I do, of course, I'd sooner try and reinforce behaviours that through observations, I believe some of this is, we have to kind of make reason, reasonable, um, kind of reasoned judgments on these things, uh, that I believe is innately useful to the dog. You know, that is something that, it's, you know, that, is, that is innately useful or authentic for them, rather than just get them to do something else instead. Sure, sure. And I wanted to touch on you. You mentioned that relief behaviours, and that really struck a chord with me. And I wonder if we can maybe unpack that just a little bit more. Maybe some real life examples of where you may see relief behaviour. I'm thinking of one that can maybe kick us off with my dog Floyd, who came out of two years in the kennels with uh, flank suckling issues and a lot of kind of suckling issues. And at the time, it would probably have been labelled as problematic or undesirable, or but, but it served function for him, right? It had a meaning, and that meaning was to soothe, to relieve himself of the stress he was under. Is there any other examples you can give with that, uh, Andrew? Let's just break, break down relief a little bit first, because I think that's important. So re relief is about... Uh, so, so when we think about the science of, um, that we... I like to see us standing on the science. That's how I like to see it, so that we can look beyond uh, things um, rather than have the science as some kind of barrier to us thinking more because, uh, you know, true science is about asking questions and it's about seeking more and then finding out those answers. But uh, I work a lot on what we know about neurology and physiology. That's where Kathy Murphy comes in, of course. We always need a neuroscientist in the room, um, Jim, as I say, because it's helpful. So neurology and philosophy, and when we think about the emotional experience coming, because uh, all this fits in, you see, so anybody who's heard me give kind of full talks on these things, it's, it's connecting this arc, really. What, would, what we know about the emotional experience, there's three main parts that I focus in on. One is sensory inputs, so that's sensory integration. Uh, again, Kathy Murphy talks uh, great, has given some great talks on sensory integration. Then how the brain processes that information. And its ability to do so. So I use my doors of the brain analogy. So it's a very simple one, but it's I, I use simple ones because I want my clients to really get them. Uh, so if you imagine the brain has lots of little doors in it, we need lots. We need um, as many doors open as possible for that processing to be able to done in a kind of um, safe, calm, rational way. Um, pain and stress are big door closers, and uh, so you just can't process as well. You see this a lot with elevated dogs, you know, dogs who are stressed, they just, they can't process properly. Uh, and then finally, the nervous system, because ultimately everything's about what the nervous system decides to do. And, um, uh, you know, if the nervous system takes over, even us humans who have a big thinking brain, and we, we're good at, moderating modulating our behavior as adults um, most of the time which is kind of why we don't go around punching each other in the face in Sainsbury's when we when we bash into our trolleys although some people do uh 
but even we struggle sometimes because if that nervous system takes over, we end up saying and doing stuff that we might regret later. That's the whole point, right? So as soon as we get that elevation, then uh, as soon as that nervous system um, builds, the body's looking to get back to that kind of initial baseline, and that's that's relief seeking element. We just we need relief, you know. Um, and for me, there are two types of relief, and there's kind of three, but the third one isn't really a type. But the first is absolute relief, and that's where so uh, so the first is absolute relief, the second is temporary relief. So a good example, if you've got dental pain and you take some pain relief, you'll get temporary relief because that's giving you that temporary. When the pain relief wears away, you've got the dental pain again. Whereas when you've gone to the dentist and you've had your root canal done or whatever it is that's absolute relief and it's just looking at it in those terms so the problem the third one if you want to call it a type is not really type, is no relief of course so it doesn't matter what you do you don't get relief you don't you don't get chance to change how you feel you don't get chance to be able to process something differently uh and that's a real shame and i do wonder how many dogs end up having no relief so when we start thinking about temporary relief, especially temporary relief is not a bad thing. It's a good thing, right? Uh, because we need that sometimes. So the example I use a lot is having a tough job, coming home, the kids are playing up. So you go and have a nice hot bubble bath or a glass of Prosecco. That's temporary relief. And that's and we need that. But the trouble is when you get out of the bath, the kids are still feral and you've got a rubbish job. But, you know, it's just that. So it's temporary relief. But the downside to temporary relief, and this kind of fits with what you were saying about the example you gave, is that it can easily fall into behaviours that start to become more problematic or inappropriate. So if that glass of Prosecco turns into a bottle of Prosecco, you know, and this is the thing we've got to think about. Um, invariably, when we think about relief, we are seeking something. We're seeking something. We're seeking escape from we are seeking connection to we are seeking whatever you know we're seeking something to me whatever it is so and i think um the problem with temporary relief and especially behaviors that start to become problematic is that we we get something but we're still not getting what we're seeking ultimately and as somebody who's had a substance abuse problem myself i get that and, and some of this notion that's out there with substance abuse that somehow it's the thing is addictive. Well, it is to a point. That's what we do. But most importantly is the fact that there is a connection that is lacking. Um, and um, that was definitely the case for me. Uh, and anybody who's gone through kind of substance abuse and come through that, um, it's finding what those connections that are missing are and finding those connections because that's actually what we, what we seek, right? We seek that. So that's relief unpacked a little bit more. Uh, so when we think about dogs then who, you know, like you say, uh, flank sucking a lot or chewing or barking or digging, all these kind of things that we see as problematic, uh, they can be dogs seeking temporary relief. It can be. The dog likes it, of course. So they could be like, oh, I love digging, which is <clears throat> great. <clears throat> but we have to think about that. So this is the thing for me about not just diving in and thinking. So, so for example, there was an example put out uh, about a year or two ago as an example of some functional analysis about a dog that used to chase its tail and went through the, and it was used as an example of going through functional analysis and that, and it found that when the owner left the room, the dog would stop the tail chasing. So the protocol was put into place that when the dog started, the owner would, would leave the room to try and make that kind of connection. That's a very operant view, right? The two questions for me though, <clears throat> which weren't addressed is 
One, why was the dog chasing its tail in the first place? And secondly, a recognition about this notion of applying emotional responses to things. So for me, all that told me was that the dog's emotional response to losing the owner had now become greater than the emotional response to the thing it was doing to get relief from with the chasing of its tail. And if that emotional response to losing the owner takes precedent over time, then yes, the behavior will reduce or maybe stop. But what relief was the dog seeking in the first place by chasing its tail? And and, and there's a great saying in, in human psychology, which is emotions will always find a way out. And I think we've got to be careful that we're not playing whack-a-mole with behavior by just thinking we're going to get, reduce that and then we're going to get rid of that and then we're going to change that because we just end up having to do stuff. Uh, and in fact, a lot of the time, we might leave a client happy having given an operant approach which has shifted a behavior or created a behavior which fits the narrative of the, the owner more. You know, it fits their, they, they find it more appropriate, which is great. Uh, but it could be months or years down the line before something else comes out. But the train is long gone by then and doesn't see that kind of fallout. Sure. So this is, so for relief me, is really important. And <clears throat> it forms a very important part of the psychology of care this thing about truly being available to the truth to the emotional needs of another and that is really hard Jim because you know something else I discussed is about the the psychology of judgments and expectations and where they kind of come from and the role of belief systems and all these kind of things you know those biases that we create to protect our belief systems uh, can stop us from being available to the truth of another because we're more looking at the truth through our own filter. So it can be hard. But, you know, one of the big influences for me, for sure, and I love her, period, uh, is Sarah Fisher, right? So uh, there is kind of before Sarah and after Sarah, as far as I'm concerned. And it was Sarah who gave me the confidence to think more. Uh, I'd suppressed a lot of my thoughts when I first came into the dog world, especially. And I was talking about some of these things that I was pretty routinely so you know it's not human psychology and blah 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 and all these kind of things were kind of pushed on so and it was sarah who really said look you know you you've got a good outlook here and especially everything i learned from sarah about the power of good observation and i think as an industry we need to teach it more i think there's two things we are lacking in the in our education for our, our colleagues one is the education of good observation and that's observation without judgment or label which is hard, Jim. It takes a lot of fine-tuning and it takes a lot to be able to turn up and truly be available to what that observation means. And second, the psychology of communication and how we use language and how we connect to our to the caregivers to get them to buy into a more of a care-orientated approach. Because the reality is most, many, not want to say most, many people fall into a task-orientated approach. And of course, an operant approach fits in with that. If you do this, this, and this, you know, here's your checklist, here's the clipboard, because uh, we're going to do this, 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 we're going to get that. So it's very task oriented. Uh, and quite often, um, the caregiver might not even know why they're doing it. They just know they've got to do it. They don't know why necessarily. And the problem there is when it comes to those narratives I was talking about, those kind of fixed views, there's a chance that they might still believe that the behavior itself is bad and it needs to be changed. Now, we're trying to persuade them to do it in a nice way, but if that expectation isn't met and they go and see somebody else down the road who does it in not so nice way, actually for them with that outlook, 
it's the same behavior that needs changing. Whereas if we get them to invest in a more care orientated approach, we don't need to worry about all these other arguments about doing it nice, doing it not, because we're looking at the, this comes back to that dog-centered care title, looking at what it is the dog needs as opposed to what it is we want. But of course the caregiver has their emotional experience and their their kind of uh, needs. Uh, and we have to find, and I, I use the term alignment, we have to find some alignment between those two things. And I always start my consults off with really giving the caregiver a chance to talk about their emotions and their experiences. And, uh, and uh, humans are notoriously bad at communicating emotional need. But on the flip side of that, we all have a real need and desire to want to do it. Even us blokes, Jim, uh, given the chance to, we want to let people know how it makes us feel, uh, even if the language is a bit fruity when we talk about it, or whatever it is that we need to say, right? Uh, and for me, <clears throat> it's the first thing. It's almost like the boil that needs to be that needs to be pierced a little bit because that person will be going through so much embarrassment, guilt, frustration, shame, whatever it is they they kind of go through. And uh, uh, and I think it's a great way to start is to connect the carer and the dog through the emotional experience. Sure. And one area I wanted to talk about there, and you touched on it um, very well, was some of the labels that are used, which are really pro problematic when, when describing, I guess, any behaviour. And you gave a couple of examples there, and I wanted to sort of maybe chat this through in terms of how problematic it is when we hear labels such as you know, dominant, stubborn, disobedient, and how that can really impact on the lens and the prism of how that person views that behaviour, but, but also and probably in some, some concerns, maybe more importantly, how they deal with that particular issue because of the lens of how they see it. Is, is that a fair thing to say? Would you agree with that? Yeah, and that's why the psychology of that side of thing is really important. It's something that <clears throat> I've started giving some talks on myself, and uh, I'm going to be running a, a little course through Dog Centre Care for professionals, whether you're a groomer, a trainer, vet, doesn't matter, on unpacking the emotional experience. What does it mean? What does it mean for us? What does it mean for our clients? And looking at the psychology of judgments and expectations, because you can't, as soon as you start to think about behaviour differently, and you start to think about it, looking at it from a more care-oriented point of view, you have to recognize you can't do that successfully a lot of the time. You can't get those best outcomes unless the caregiver recognizes the reality of the care needs of their dog. And that starts with what they're... So remember, we, we, don't, we don't see with our eyes. We don't hear with our ears. We, we see with our brain. We hear with our brain. Because it depends what our brain makes of what we see and hear. This is the point. Uh, so <clears throat> the brain doesn't like to have to cognitively reappraise much. Does that, in other words, it doesn't like to have to really think about it much because it would be knackering, wouldn't it? It would just be so tiring. So it starts to create a bit of a worldview. It creates a belief system based on our experiences and, and all the kind of things. There's a lot of influences there, cultural, family, um, a lot of role model stuff that influences that belief system. There's a lot of things that we experience ourselves and there's a lot of things that we take as fact from those that we connect to as part of that. Uh, and that creates, you know, connected to the value systems and this kind of thing. As I say, because the brain doesn't have to reevaluate that much, uh, it starts, it, it wants to protect that worldview. And that's where we have those cognitive biases, cognitive distortions that filter things. So, you know, you can say to somebody, blah, 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 uh, but they're hearing something completely different. Uh, even though you you feel you said something to them, their their brain's taking out the bits to that suits that that belief system. Um, 
underpinning that then are expectations and judgments. And this is the real point that that worldview, that belief system kind of gives the foundation to those judgments. What I judge now is being sound and right and wrong and everything else and what I expect. As soon as those expectations and judgments are compromised or not met, there is a real drive, a real urge to want to control, change and coerce to get that to fit my worldview, my belief system. And this is just the reality of it. And we will all go through these processes. But most of us aren't even aware of this process. That's the point. <clears throat> so you're absolutely right. If somebody believes their dog is dominant and they have an expectation that their dog should be able to do something, they will then start to create a language around that because that's the final bit of that little hierarchy is the language we use to support it. So they'll use words like bad, naughty, stubborn, willful. They'll create a language around that which fits their worldview now, which is taking them further and further away from that dog's truth. Because they're, they're, this is really important stuff. True. So we have to learn about this stuff because we need to navigate that. Now, sometimes you'll meet a client whose worldview, their belief system is completely in alignment with yours. And, and it's wonderful, right? So easy. They're like, oh, yeah, well, you know, I think my dog's quite stressed. So actually, I've stopped taking my dog down the dog park now. And you think, yeah, great, you get it. Um, but there's other people whose worldview belief system is a 180 to ours. And we've got to stop judging them as bad people because, you know, they're just people with a different worldview at the moment. Um, we can make other judgment calls about people being bad people, of course, we can, but not just because they, they think their dog's dominant or because they've used certain tools. When they, the, the big word here is the word awareness, Jim. They're just not aware because they haven't been able to be available enough to the truth of another. They've just very much fallen into the trap that we all have of that quick thinking judgment expectation brain so it's important and, and when we learn to navigate some of this stuff it helps because we can bring people on now if you uh if you think your dog's dominant and you've used certain tools and i was to say actually do you know what jim your dog is not dominant we don't say that anymore and actually we don't use those tools because they're wrong and actually they can cause a lot of problem and studies have shown that actually if you do that blah 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 you might think oh okay i didn't know that but more likely, those defense systems are kicking off in your brain now. Those belief filters are starting to put up barriers because you're starting to feel stupid, you're starting to feel threatened, you're starting to feel challenged, because that's what the brain makes us feel, because memory doesn't want to have to reappraise. So we have to allow people through language, through, this is why I love talking about connecting through the emotional experience, because it's one way on a very human level that we can give you a little example of this so there's a great thing on it's a little while ago on channel four they had a documentary where they brought together people from polarized views and they had a syrian refugee and somebody from the very right-wing kind of english defense league sort of background um and it was really interesting because the guy was in tears at the end of that because her story touched him so much so to him, all immigrants are bad or, you know, they're all here to take our job or whatever it is. Or it's a racist thing because they're different. When he heard that lady's story, when he heard about the loss of her child, when he heard about what she was fleeing from, when she, he heard about all these kind of things. And when he heard about the reasons why she chose the UK, because there's this kind of 
thing about, well, why not stop in France? You know, uh, He got it. And this is the thing. He was able to be available to the truth of another. And it's powerful stuff, Jim. Sure is. And he makes some really good points there. And I, I guess we would like to unpack a little bit more is about that, you know, the client facing side of it, where you made a, a great example there of barriers being put up, you know, feel, feeling attacked, you know, by dealing with labels or tools or approach to directly. And, and you're right, it is a, it's an educational issue, isn't it? That person might not be aware that things have moved on, that we don't use those tools or those approaches, or that there's a better way because nobody has shown them. And how we approach that is of critical value, isn't it, to that particular owner, adopter, whatever. Do you have any tips or advice in terms of how to approach that better that will get compliance or get them on board faster? I think one of the most important things is giving them a chance at the very beginning to tell us what they need to tell us. <clears throat> and some of this comes from good communication skills that, you know, um, we can't unpack in tonight, of course. Uh, but there's also, I think, so my husband's a, a nurse. He's an end-of-life nurse, actually. And um, the level of care awareness that he has can't be taught. So you see some people that go into care and they're quite task oriented because the true essence of care is you kind of have it or you don't. It's the same with my friends who run hospitality venues, like hotels and pubs and that kind of thing. People can come and go through the motions. Hello, sir, can I take your order? And there are people who are like, it's my, my innate passion to make sure that you have the best time. And I think this is something to recognize as, for us as an industry. You know, there are going to be some colleagues who will find this really easy because they're like, oh, wow, that's, I, I get that. Other colleagues will find it harder. As I say, it doesn't mean you can't do it. It just means we need more education on, on, on communication skills, I think, as, and active listening and all these kind of things that are important. But it's a, it's a great place to start because, again, if we're turning up and saying, oh, yeah, this is the problem and this is how we're going to change it, the, the caregiver, the owner, isn't even connecting properly yet. And for me, it's language. So I call the owners caregivers. That's what I call them. So I'm already throwing the word care in there. I'm like, yeah, so you're a caregiver. And then I can say to them really easily, you know, being a caregiver is hard. Whether you're caring for a child, for an elderly relative, for a partner with social sensitivities or anxieties, or a dog with social sensitivities or anxieties, being a carer is hard. So already they're like, yeah, God, it is hard. Actually, you get, oh, my God, it is hard, yeah. So rather than feeling judged, they're thinking, my God, you get it. And it's like, yeah, it's, it's good. So I get it. Getting them to share their truth is important. Using the right language, I, I don't use the word aggressive or reactive. I use the word sensitive because what I'm expressing on them is that the dog, the dog's nervous system, really, but the dog is sensitive to something. You know, they're uh, unable to be exposed to something without having that big elevation and they struggle to self-regulate. Um, I used uh, support plans instead of training plans. Uh, I make those support plans, they're, they're a live plan. So uh, I use a bit of software so that the, the support plan isn't just a report, that's, a, that's it to be filed away. It's something that I keep adding to for them. And it really plays in into that kind of psychology of recognizing that this is an organic process. You know, support is an organic process. And what I love about support plan is it's just about just as much about their support. You know, it's about their support, dog support. Um, using words like relief, instead of using the words like reinforce, we're going to reinforce this behavior. I don't say that. I say we're going to do this because it's going to get you give your dog relief. Or I can say to them, actually, and it's, it's a lot easier to sell pitch management 
when you start talking in these terms. Because um, especially when they've shared a lot with you themselves about how it makes them feel to be in certain situations. And then what I tend to do is a three-stage thing. The first stage is caregiver, tell me stuff. Second is in a neutral way, introduce the principle of the emotional experience and stress and use my analogies. Then I throw that back to the caregiver and I can say, oh, so your bucket must have been pretty full then. Or you probably didn't have many doors open, did you? Or I bet you really wanted relief then, didn't you? And they're like, my God, yeah, I did. The last thing we talk about now is the dog, because we're, we're using the right vocabulary now. We're on the same page. And so now we can bring Rover into it. What do you think? How do we think Rover must be doing with that? Where's the Rover's bucket in that? And usually there's some consensus, which is actually that situation that you're finding yourself isn't helping either of you. And they can come to a better conclusion. Now, if I'd started off by saying, oh, why are you taking your dog down the beach? Don't take your dog down the beach. I'd have had you, yeah, but I won't take the dog down the beach. You know, God, I paid you all that money for you to tell me I can't do something. Whereas if we come to that conclusion ourselves, quite often they're like, oh, God, I don't have to go to the beach. God, that's great because I dread going down the beach with my dog because there's always a bit of trouble. So I think this, this it's only a small bit there, Jim, I, I know, but. It's just given a flavor really for, and, and I really must stress, this is really important. I just think about my own stuff and, uh, and I talk about stuff and I just invite people to think about this and, and pull the strands out that they feel might be authentic or applicable for them. It definitely isn't a blueprint and say other people must do it this way. Uh, <clears throat> but I think, you know, the days of turning up and just leaving a report or a training plan are kind of, fading behind us now we have to get and this notion of compliance how do we get them to be compliant do you know i hate that word because uh in the same way like i was talking earlier about the, my kind of issues around it with with doggies a little bit but um we we need them to buy into it for sure we need them to to recognize their role but it's far better that they do so willingly and knowingly than it to be a chore or to be something that they're because this thing about expectations we're thinking hang on you've got unrealist expectations of your dog we often say that our industry is 50 percent managing expectations and yet we're putting expectations on the client when we meet them so i think you know uh, there's a bit of an irony there isn't there yeah, yeah definitely for sure there was one uh, analogy that i really wanted you to go through if, if you wouldn't mind which was that bucket analogy you mentioned it there um, about, um, I guess, um, some people's ability to to cope and, and when that bucket overfills, that's when we maybe start to see, and that applies to our dogs too, right? I wonder if you could take us through that wonderful analogy, Andrew. Yeah, so it's not my analogy. This one has been around for a long time, um, but it's a good one. And uh, so it's a very simple one, really. Everybody kind of takes the bucket analogy in their own way, professionally. Um, uh, and we even used it back in human therapy days when I before I even came to animals. But <clears throat> if you imagine the empty bucket, this is how I kind of define it. If you imagine the empty bucket as a um, uh, uh, that den it denotes the nervous system, the stress system, right? And the water in the bucket is how much stress we're carrying or how much that nervous system engages. The fuller the bucket, the less doors we have open, the less chance of a mindful, rational, self-regulated response, the more chance of a dysregulated, uh, emotional, irrational, and this is the important word for me, really important word, reflexive response. The fuller your bucket, the more chances you are just to do something. 
And remember that what I love about the bucket analogy and, and um, my friends in the ACE community, the Animal Centered Education, Sarah Fisher and, and ACE, uh, they use the candles analogy. And I can't remember the lady who came up with the candles, uh, which is another kind of version of this, really, which is, um, yeah, the more stress you have, the more st individual stresses, the more you light individual candles and the more heat you create, the more, you know, more elevated you are. No matter how you look at it, what I love about both those analogies, really, but we're talking about the bucket one specifically, is that, it, that is how lacking in judgment it is. It's not saying the bucket is good and bad. It's not saying what goes in the bucket is good and bad. Remember, the, the body doesn't uh, care. It doesn't um, The body doesn't um, discriminate between good and bad stress. Our brain does. Our brain does. The negative bias and all that kind of stuff. Uh, but um, so it's just anything go in the bucket. Uh, and um, stress is cool. You know, it's not a bad thing. It gets us doing stuff, and it's important. Uh, and a normal process is bucket filling, which is the sympathetic system, and then homeostasis takes over, and then we have decompression or, or bucket draining, the parasympathetic system. It's just nice and simple. But the thing is, if in an ideal world, we have our bucket baseline level that's where the body thinks this is my kind of baseline bit and if you imagine lots of little dials all the dials are all set nice there is an elevation so that means the bucket fills a bit but then there's the opportunity for it to decompress and drain back to that nice level that's all lovely problem is when we get it filling 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 drain a bit filling 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 drain a bit and we end up with an artificially high level and this happens with us all the time and sadly we've kind of passed this on for our dogs um, you know, Kim Brophy says about dysregulation that you don't get dysregulation in Mother Nature. You know, animals that they elevate and decompress, they go through that kind of regulatory process. Admittedly, they might get eaten during that process, but um, we're really good at just not decompressing properly. And when I was working with humans, I could, I could, well, I had, I have worked with people who had been stressed for decades, not just weeks or months. So they, they feel that they're not stressed. Um, until something happens that kind of makes them think, well, maybe I am. Uh, they sleep through the night, but the problem is they're not refreshed when they get up in the morning. They're, it doesn't matter how much the kind of R&R &R they take, they're never quite recuperated. And that's because the, the system's all over the place. And, and so the bucket analogy is a good one. The buckets, the doors, the brain, relief, those three things for me really encapsulate the emotional experience and the notion of care. And it's something that caregivers can get their head around. So very quickly, caregivers then when they're sending their, I've got a, like an online journal so they can put in their entries. They're saying, oh my God, you know, my bucket was really full today. Or Rover didn't have many doors open today. I can, you know, whatever it is. And it's just recognizing the correlation in all these things because we can see it more. Uh, we've just got to stop seeing behavior as somehow on a continuum of good to bad. Absolutely. And that's kind of what we've done traditionally. And And again, there's a lot of psychology behind that, Jim, because especially here in the UK, we're hardwired into that the moment we're born almost, because as soon as we get to a certain age, we're expected to conform, to wear certain clothes. We go into a structured education system where somebody has decided what the acceptable behaviours look like, what results look like. We're pitted against our peers in order to attain those results. There's so many things there. And of course, when we think about the, the need, it's a, it's a real need, of course, for social cohesion, the rule of law, all these kind of things, we kind of have to see things sometimes as well. Actually, Jim, that was wrong. But we shouldn't project all that onto our dogs who, uh, and even for ourselves, I wrote, I wrote a piece recently called Whose Behaviour Is It Anyway? Uh, looking at the intrinsic 
authenticness of behavior. I see our individual behaviors as unique to us as our haircut or the clothes we wear or the car we drive. Right? And we've got to be careful when we're trying to change behavior that we're not taking away some of that authentic valued behavioral responses. We've seen the fallout from that with you know, our friends in the neurodivergent community who have experienced some quite harsh um, kind of, especially ABA style um, approaches when they were younger. We've seen the same with um, uh, certain sectors of the community. Um, I would include myself with that. I'm, I'm a gay man, uh, married now, all great and wonderful. But growing up in the 70s, it wasn't like that. And sure. um, so, yeah, there's a lot to consider. For sure, for sure. And, and I guess that those kind of culturally conditioned um, part, part of us does apply to dogs too. And, and I tend to find that most owners may have expectations of how dogs will behave, you know, in their homes. And that's maybe culturally conditioned. Um, it may not be reality, particularly for that dog who has a evolutionary ethological background and, and i'm thinking of some examples of dogs i'm working with just now that maybe wouldn't translate particularly well into a domestic setting and it's the owner's expectation of that dog and normally when the dog doesn't meet those expectations that's when problems start would you agree with that 100 uh there's that saying isn't it expectations are the mother of all disappointment uh and the best antidote to expectation is gratitude and that's something that we have to pursue and, and invite with our caregivers because, you know, th their expectations will come from that belief system structure that we were talking about. And, uh, and quite often some of those expectations are about real need for them. You know, one of the reasons that we suffer, there's many, uh, but one of the reasons we suffer with huge loss when we lose a dog is because they are more to us than just a canine companion they have come to represent you know uh, somebody who has navigated through life with us who has bared witness to their biggest event all these kind of things and some of the expectations that we have especially when we have a new dog after having had that dog there are real needs behind some of those expectations for caregivers it's very easy just to think well that's stupid you know that that you know that's so unrealistic why are you thinking but it's interesting to ask always asking where, where do you think that that expectation comes from how can we identify the need behind it which the caregiver has persuaded themselves through their belief system that they can't have that unless they do it with the dog and then look at other avenues that we can perhaps look at uh, and i think that's important and uh uh as i say the best antidote, one of the best antidote to, to, to expectations is gratitude. And, and it's inviting caregivers to be to look to see what they're thankful for. Uh, and there's a great little saying, which is let the let the um, let the little wins give the biggest grins. And it's trying to get the caregivers to start to buy into that a little bit, because, you know, the big stuff, uh, well, it's just going to lead to a lot of disappointment and frustration whereas those little things when they come oh my god we love them and we want to embrace them and cuddle them and, and make a big thing of them yeah yeah that's great well one thing you touched on earlier was about the kind of the kind of cognitive bias side of it i wonder if you have any tips about how to deal with that i've went through um kind of subconscious bias training um before um from, from an employer which i felt was super useful do, do you have any tips for anyone who may be struggling with that side of it uh, yeah, I think, again, there's a lot to unpack even on that, really. And um, uh, 
don't be plugging stuff but my the course i'm going to do for professionals will look into that a bit into a bit more and, and look into that but but i think uh we the language is really important uh and in my experience connecting through the emotional experience is one of the best ways to navigate through that i've got my cake analogy which is compassion awareness knowledge and empathy and when we start working through those four with the caregiver uh that's the best way for them to start to reappraise it's about it's not even about challenging yeah we use that word i know uh but it's about them feeling they can actually reappraise or cognitively reappraise some of those beliefs that they had um and a lot of them are based upon not nothing more than what they've picked up from the culture around them or the zeitgeist so they are not heavily planted in much. It's just because they saw the guy on the telly or they used to watch Barbara Woodhouse or, or Dogs Are Dominant, right? Uh, so almost, not, not see, we can't be responsible as professionals, in my opinion, for delivering best outcomes, ultimately. Now, I've had people challenge me on that, saying, well, if you can't, then you should refer to somebody who can. And I think that's really dangerous we all have to recognize our own abilities, of course. But the reason we can't be responsible to look for that best outcome every time, we can look for best outcomes, but not the outcome we might want, uh, is because some people, the ability to try and navigate that belief system, they're just not in the place to do it yet. This is the same in human therapy. You can work with somebody with their substance misuse, uh and they might just come out of therapy they might disappear and you think you've lost them but another year down the line they're ready to engage because they're in that place now and i've worked with many many clients who have been who have found that their own expectation is so strong their own needs were so strong that they couldn't quite bypass that at the time and they've ended up doing other stuff and then have come back and said you know now i see it now i see it now I've had a chance to reappraise. And reappraisal is hard. It's very hard in the moment. And it's even harder over time. You know, I would invite you, Jim, to think about your politics, your views, your connection to social norms. And uh, I don't know how old you are, uh, but uh, over time, uh, how they've shifted, right? But they didn't shift overnight. You didn't uh, just suddenly think, actually, I totally disagree with that that I thought of yesterday and now I'm going to do that. Sometimes it can happen that way, especially if we've, we're in, we're available to it. Uh, and, um, and that in itself takes a bit of practice, but so I think, um, cake, compassion, awareness, knowledge, empathy. I've written an article on that in, in the dog center care group. People, is it, I think it's compassion is always a good place to start. Uh, and giving people to, the opportunity to share their truth. Even if that truth we feel isn't right, <laughs> you know, as, a, uh, as in as in that truth isn't isn't the reality for their dog even. Uh, but we have to start somewhere, and uh, and it's better to be guided than it is to be challenged. I think. Yeah, for sure. And using empathy in those situations can really help, kind of, to get that person to, to to buy into what you're saying. But that applies to dogs too, and it does help us to. I guess, anthropomorphize a little bit from a dog's perspective to empathize with their position, albeit it can be equally unhelpful depending on how far you take that. Um, and, and I wonder if there's any examples of anthropomorphism, you know, the situations where, you know, dogs are, you know, 
reacting instinctively and reflexively as you mentioned that was a fantastic example of reflexive behavior at a moment where they're massively over threshold and and not necessarily and if they're always thinking through what they're doing they're reacting to their environment and i wonder do you have any tips or advice for people who maybe do have emotionally overloaded dogs you know how to to and i guess it is case by case but if there are any tips in terms of giving them relief behaviors that we can give them access to and i'm thinking along the lines of using enrichment potentially um a massive into foraging and scent work and, and and using those types of very natural normal behaviors to, to to help our dogs would they be good examples of relief behaviors that we can actually help embed in, in, in training plans sure i just want to come back uh i'm gonna unpack that but i just want to come back to this anthropomorphism thing because there was a big anti-anthropomorphic movement about five years or so ago and 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 i get it at the time because part of that was the kind of pushback events, people seeing their dogs as little furry people. Um, the kind of baby that's got thrown out with the bathwater is the fact that we somehow dismissed the emotionality of the dogs in the process. And actually, anthropomorphism, uh, it's a bit of an odd one anyway, a little bit for me, because we're an animal. We just happen to be a human animal. The human animal is extremely flawed and complicated, and the human condition is basically, in my opinion, the friction between the animal and our big philosophical, human thinking, pragmatic, planning brain, because the two can they two collide quite a lot, right? And especially when we think we talk about expectations, expectations put on us as a species because we're supposed to be civilized and we're supposed to not do stuff. I just thought I'd throw that in. Um, so uh, almost always the answer is slowing things down as a starting point because. You know, if I've got a dog who, you know, I've been asked to get involved because the dog struggles around with the dogs, for example, the last thing I want to do is see that dog around with the dogs. I want to, I want to learn from that dog how it processes in lots of different ways, how it processes me, how it deals with smaller elevations and decompressions when it's in situations when the dog's in situations that it can self-regulate. I want to learn from that. I want to try and work out what those... Uh, and, and one of the big ones we find is about how dogs move. Orientation is really important. That's something we learn. It wasn't interesting how the dog kind of needs to do that. The trouble is when the buck is too full, they can't access some of that coping strategy because they're just they're just dysregulated. So I think slowing things down is really important. Giving clients especially permission to, to not do stuff for a while um give that dog chance to generally decompress and most of the when i say most i keep saying that word shouldn't use that word many many of the dogs i work with uh, i'm looking puppy's awake by the way everybody but she's doing all right at the moment so we should be okay i'm just keeping an eye open that she's chewing something i want her to uh and not one of my husband's dolly parton cds or something because like <laughs> i'll get him in trouble uh i think um many of the dogs their bucket's fuller than it needs to be anyway right uh so if you imagine that's the bucket and there's the stress in the bucket for me the gap between the top of the stress and the top of the bucket for me that's tolerance the size of the bucket for me is resilience okay that's just how i see it so for some dogs we just need to get them a bigger bucket one of my clients said to me once that her dog didn't have a bucket it had a thimble and, and i thought great you're already thinking in those terms that that dog and i like when we think about scent being sensitive Dogs who are on the more sensitive end of things. The same for humans. 
It just means that you need more time and space to be able to process things for those doors to stay open before that nervous system takes over, before the bucket gets too much. And, um, you know, we have such a fast-paced life that many of these dogs, uh, you know, just being out in the environment is already over arousing for them. It's hard for them. And we forget how much, um, Kathy Murphy's got a great infographic on her Barking Brains page about what dogs are taking in through multisensory integration. It's a lot, it's a hell of a lot. Now, you and I take for granted that the majority of what we take on board through sensory processing is uh, over 95% is done subconsciously. So, and that's how we normally should operate. Same for a dog, you know, uh, it's a case of processing and just subconsciously doing stuff and then occasionally being more aware of stuff. The more sensitive you are, the more you're aware of everything. And if anybody listening has ever struggled with anxiety themselves or gone through an anxious period, you'll know that you're aware of more, you need more time. It can be very easy to get overwhelmed. And we've just got to start thinking. And especially when we start thinking about doing training as a solution, as a part of it. Are we offering that dog relief through what we're doing? Or are we adding something else for them to process when they're already struggling to process that? And now we're asking them to process that. Uh, and I think we've just got to be mindful of that. And um, uh, uh, and we're not going down the road of diving in and micromanaging because we have to now. So it's uh, probably a bit of a long-winded answer. I don't know whether I even answered it properly, Jim, to be honest, because I don't really know. Uh, but, yeah, so I think this is the thing. We, we have to just think about things a little bit differently and not going in with that task-orientated approach. When I meet a client for a coaching walk, for example, I've arranged to meet them at 11 o'clock tomorrow. So that's an arbitrary time. And I've got to do that because we can't have a completely fluid diary. So there's an arbitrariness about it, and I'm, I'm, and I need to be aware of that. And in my head, I might think, yeah, when Rover turns up, we're going to do this, this and this. But I have to check in to see what Rover's turned up today. Yeah. And not just in that moment, I might think, right, if I go left now, I go down to the beach. Um, but if I go right, I go to the park. But if I go straight ahead, I go to the quiet little woods. I have to make those decisions at the time because uh, I'm trying to keep that dog in a self-regulatory position. And especially if I'm going to start thinking about exposing the dog to something it struggles with, I've, I've got to really understand a lot of that before we do that. And, and for me, a lot of dogs, many dogs, who have what we would class as traditionally reactive responses, lunging and barking, what we learn when we slow things down and do good observations is that the dog doesn't actually have a problem with the trigger per se, but it has a very specific criteria around social processing before it decides about social engagement. But it has a history of social engagement coming first. Dogs running up to them, people try to touch them. And I'm experiencing this right now with Molly, my pup. I'm going to be sharing her story on Dog Center Care soon. Uh, she told us uh, the temptation with puppies is to dive in and do loads of training. Well, I've done none, hardly. Uh, not functional, not kind of um, direct training. What we have done is loads of listening to her. And, and gradually exposing her to things in a way that she can keep processing. And what she's told us is that she really struggles with social engagement with unless she feels safe with people. And it goes through a cycle of her, her, her ideal is for the majority of people 
is to sniff and go. She wants to sniff their ankle, sniff their foot, move on. If they put social pressure on, uh, she's like to go through the silliness that dogs go through. But with her, when it gets to a certain point, she'll bite, like puppy bite. And this is one of the reasons why she was given up, because she, you know, all puppies bite, but she was pretty full on with her. And that's pretty clear why, because nobody's listening to her. And so she's grabbing on. So so we've learned that from early age, which is great now, because I think, right, okay, some people don't ask, sadly. So, But when people do, I can say, yeah, no touching, no, just let her do her thing. Uh, and she's now... Even if people go to touch her, she's only five months, but she's already walking on. She's like, no, I'm going to walk on her. So I've really helped her to know at an early age, you can go through your own self-regulatory process. Well, Not feel under pressure. Well, and well. it makes you think, Jim, about how many dogs who jump up, who act silly, go through fun appeasement behaviors, go through adolescence, now start barking at passers-by. What we missed when they were little about what their preferences were regarding processing in the environment. Yeah, totally. How different is that an approach um, to what you would typically see from puppy rearing? Fantastic. That's a great example. I'm looking forward to seeing more about your puppy. What's your puppy's name? Molly. Molly. Okay, great. We'll look forward to seeing more about that. So do, do you feel then that giving her more choice, control, ability to process would be more beneficial than, say, for example, exposure, treats, pairing, counter conditioning, that type of thing? Whilst that has its place, do you feel that that's better to give her choice and an ability to process? Yeah, because we've got to be careful what we do with food, especially with puppies. Uh, so um, uh, we have a very, we've had a very clear structure with her. Uh, say she came to us at 12 weeks. Um, and uh, uh, so we missed that first kind of four weeks. But um, so we had a lot of her walks in very quiet areas, really quiet areas, where she can learn to mooch and plod and just kind of forage and just be, right, uh, which is so important. And um, uh, so she then really starts to connect through her nose. Uh, she sniffs a lot. She goes at a nice pace. Uh, we don't have a dog that pulls because she's really used to just plodding along. She's not being taken down the park, taken down the beach, taken different places, elevation, elevation, elevation. Then once a day, we do kind of exposure work, if you want to call it that. And that's where we go to different places, do different things, and we let her tell us what she needs. Uh, and more often than not, this is Molly's story. I must stress that. Every dog's different, right? Uh, Molly's story is very much one about, you know, what? I'd sooner just watch for a bit. And then I'll make my choices about there. And she makes very clear choices then about engagement or not. Now, uh, we had, we've had so many situations where there's been things that have happened in the environment that have affected her. There's been a bit scary for her that she's gone through whatever she needs through to, to be able to add the distance she needed or to be able to give herself the space, not just physical space, but head space to process. And we have to trust Mother Nature. But here again, Kim Murphy, uh, Kim Murphy, uh, Kathy Murphy tells us a lot about the young brain. Really, you know, Mother Nature has given them a, a lot to help them. Really, now if I dove in there with, oh my God, treat, 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 treat. What am I doing? Am I stopping her from going through these natural elevation, decompression, self-regulation processes? Quite probably. What I'm saying is, if that happens, you need to come and have a treat. If that happens, you need to have a treat. Or, you know, I'm going to keep using food to make you feel better. Um, but, but am I? And this thing about counter conditioning, what am I counter? What am I countering exactly? Sure. 
Um, our job, my husband and I, is to keep her safe, to teach her a vocabulary that makes sense to her, that is about keeping her safe, and to expose her to the world in a way that she can have internal value to the behaviours that work for her, whilst learning from her what those are. So I can I can tell now really well when she's starting to elevate. I can see it now because I've learned the micro behaviours very well. And if I have to step in and offer a support solution, I will. And I don't just leave her to get on with it, of course not. Um, but uh, but it's up to us to think about the environments we go to. So, for example, one of the things we learned from her was that she was struggling with the traffic. So um, that one, it just takes that one bit of the day. That's all we do for her, one bit of the day. But we plan it out. We keep a diary. We know what we're doing. So we did quite a few bits of these specifically for the traffic. We found that we got a great space just up the road here, um, which is one-way traffic. Uh, so she only had to deal with it coming one way. Great. We had managed to find a place where she could watch and observe and take that in. Again, no food being thrown in to make her feel better. It's just letting her work out what's going on here. She told us. But if you work from a distance and gradually work towards, it's amazing seeing how dogs orientate. So they're, they're walking towards and then they orientate like that. So that's her saying, that's where I can't go any further now because we're going so slowly. And then we wait there. She does a little bit of what I call fake sniffing, that kind of displacement stuff. Uh, but she's still kind of looking at the cars over there. And then she's kind of right. And you can see that breathing change. You can see the, whew, and then she moves on a little bit more. And so she's finding her own space. This is really important because then she can deal with it. Yeah, I agree. Do we use food? Yes, of course we do. Uh, we use food, but in a, you can have it when you want kind of way, really. You know, this notion as well about check-ins, about training a check-in with food, uh, she checks in when she needs to check in. And I believe in my value of, as her caregiver to feel that she gets enough from my smile and my acknowledgement and my, yeah, great, good, good job. And she kind of does. Um, sometimes she might get some food, sometimes not. Interestingly, we had a day where my husband was handling her uh, and he ended up giving her a, a bit more food just because what happened for about 10 minutes on that walk she just kept looking at him for food and she was no longer processing the environment so and, and that was you know it was just by mistake really it just kind of happened that way and even kieran says wow the shape they're changing her now because she's like where's my where's the is the next treat coming uh so i think we've just got to look at this stuff a little bit differently and um and think about the difference between structured learning and environmental stroke experimental learning and at this age now, I'm not going to teach her loads of bloody words that she's going to forget as the teenage brain kicks off. What's the point? I'm going to keep her safe. I'm going to think about the environments I go to. The big thing for me is her main walks where she can be off leash uh, or when she's on her long line, whichever depends on the environment, where she can just mooch at her own pace and, and, and learn the value of sniffing and finding berries and Getting into, she found a big pile of leaves the other day. God, that was really amazing for her. She thought that was amazing. So, yeah, such important points that you make, though, and it's it, that, that's so different, but it's so important, isn't it? MJ wants to check out that more. Might want to check out Suzanne Claudia's great video on um, just going and doing nothing. And as as trainers and behaviour consultants, our instincts are is always to do something, particularly if you're being paid for that for that job, right, Andrew? But but, but ultimately, if you just go and do nothing, sometimes let your dogs process. On, on the threshold and at a safe distance, of course, 
can be much more beneficial than going and constantly working with rewards, whether that's food, whatever. Is that something you would agree with? Hundred percent. And um, bear with me a second. I'm going to see if I can find a favourite bone. I can't find now. Never mind. Oh, there is. Hang on, one second. I'll see you in a second. No problem. See you in a second. There you go. It's right there. Uh, right there. Uh, I was having a meeting the other day, uh, Jim, and she woke up and I didn't have anything to hand and I was literally throwing things from my desk like coasters and anything she could just kind of, well, that's interesting. Yeah, uh, I, have, I have Floyd nudging my arm here to uh, go and go, can I get something, please? <laughs> the, um, uh, yeah, you're absolutely right. And if we're just doing nothing, we're being in the moment, but we're giving a commentary we're narrating that for the client. We're doing something. See how that happens? See that? Isn't that wonderful how that happens? So it's not a case of just doing nothing. And actually, um, uh, within the dog center care group, we had Lucy Olders a few weeks ago who um, is doing kind of puppy classes very differently uh, where there is no sit down, come stay, the usual stuff it's about. Uh, and the, the huge success she's had and how people are just blown away from it. They're not oh, where's my, well, yeah, this isn't how it should be because they, they really get it. We've got Helen Moore coming in in a few weeks time uh irish trainer based over in canada i think um uh who's doing amazing things about rethinking how we offer an experience for young dogs and how we should be more about building resilience and coping strategies and this notion of life skills they're only life skills if they have if they have internal value to the dog Otherwise, they're just doing stuff. When you talk about enrichment earlier, we've got Shay Kelly actually this Saturday, I think, in the Dog Center Care Group, unpacking enrichment because, you know, at the very least, enrichment should be enriching. This is the point. Uh, But also, it needs to be, um, it doesn't have to be, we have to think about what the dog, so if we give the dog a kind of a man made puzzle that they kind of work stuff out, and it might be fun for them, I'm not saying it's not, but what have they learned from that necessarily that are going to have use for them? But when we start giving them the opportunities to explore and mooch, as I call it, but to do different things in the environment or in the home, or uh, we do a lot of stuff with Molly with free work, Sarah Fisher's free work. uh, And that's when we introduce a lot of things around her then. So we've been doing noise work and that kind of thing, but not in a play the noise quietly, give her some food and off you go. Getting her into play, into that kind of play-seeking mind, uh, uh, and then introducing things while she's in that nice endorphin-rich, um, this is what I'm engaging with stuff. And and she's improving with her proprioception. So it's, everything is just happening in a way that really happens. Um, uh, yeah. yeah. Naturally. Yeah, and uh, such, such great examples, but so different, isn't it, than from how puppies are bred and integrated and then trained under the current sort of paradigm. And I think if we look to our human examples of um, the unschooling movement and um, my amazing, wonderful friend, Rachel Meadows, who, uh, again, did a Facebook Live with her in the in the Dog Centre Care Group, uh, you know, she talks this stuff and she lives this stuff. You know, she's... Um, her own son, uh, she's she's kind of homeschooled and she's gone through, um, you know, forest education systems and all this kind of thing where it's not about, I don't want to get too political, but it's not what the government decide that educational output needs to be. It's what his authentic learning journey is for him, how he connects socially, how he feels he can express 
his emotional need, uh, we can risk um, losing some of that. If uh, oh, what's going on here? Um, we can risk losing some of that uh, if we just have a structured approach. So I always ask people to think: What do you remember from school? From a learning point of view, there will be some things that you'll remember. The vast majority you won't. But what you will remember for sure is how you connected to authority, how you connected with your peers, how you learned about the pitfalls of social engagement, how you felt safe expressing and communicating emotional need. Uh, and many of us carry those scars with us into adulthood. We carry forwards what were appropriate coping strategies that are now inappropriate. And that's why therapists will always make a good living because a lot of it comes back to the traumas of a structured education system. And I think we can extrapolate some of that. We're thinking about putting heavy emphasis on, uh, you know, things from an opera point of view with young dogs about what they need to learn and ignoring their innate coping strategies, their own learning styles. You know, I, I've got a bit of an issue with, and I don't say this in a, because I've got friends who do, and, and I get it, and that's fine, just send me my personal opinion, but things that have, uh, I think something like the Good Citizen Scheme or something like that, you know, just to pick that out. Whilst in essence it's a great idea, it's a case of teaching some good skills and that kind of thing, I don't like the arbitrary nature of pass and fail, when for some of these dogs, the fact that just even in that village hall is a huge win for that dog. The fact that they then can't go on and do that in the perfect way doesn't make them a bad citizen. That's that's the point, you know, or whatever it is. And I, I think we have to be just be mindful of that. Um, many trainers do these things in a really open and supportive way, but some don't. And it is a case of the clipboard says that's not right without seeing the effort that that dogs have to do just to even do a small bit of it. And I think we just have to think about these things. That's all. And, and, and always come back to the emotional experience, Jim. It's kind of brought us around a little bit, I guess. But um, to think about, for me, there's only two types of behavior. The behavior we judge in others and the behavior we do ourselves. And if we think about why we judge the behavior in others and unpack that, that will help a lot. But most of all, to recognize the behavior we do ourselves, because we know it's complicated, right? Sure. We don't think about our behavior much. We just do it. As humans, we love to judge, but we hate to be judged. And the reason is, if you were to say something to me now in a judgy way, I could quite rightly say, well, hang on, Jim, you don't know my day. You don't know my life. You don't know what cross I'm bearing at the moment. So this just helps us to be a bit more humble, I think, when we think about the behavior of others and, and especially the power we have that's invested in us when we think about changing that behavior and uh, getting that balance between doing it because we can and asking whether we should. Yeah, such a good example. Isn't that? And that's maybe somewhere that we could... Um, come to a natural conclusion. I think that was a lovely line that you gave us there, uh, Andrew, and I appreciate we're, we're well over an hour here, and I know you're a busy person too, so um, that, that's maybe we've taken to a conclusion. Unless there's anything else you want to go through, I'll, I'll, I'll thank you for your time. That's been amazing. And if uh, everyone in the comment section can show you show Andrew a bit of love, I'm sure they will anyway. And, and I'll just say thank you so much for doing this, Andrew. It's really appreciated. And, uh, and, and take care. Thanks for having me, Jim. Really appreciate it. Thanks very much. Bye for now.